if you enter a feature war, you're never going to win. That's a terrible thing to do. And so it's about saying, hey, we're going to create our own market, our own category. We're going to rename it. It's not, we're not a live chat, but conversational marketing, right? And you can say, no, that's just like some marketing BS, but it works. I'm Pep Lau. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. Maybe some high fives. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS, because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win? This week, Guillaume Caban, also known as a G, co-founder and journal partner at Hypergrowth Partners, an advisory fund that helps B2B companies grow faster in exchange for equity. G is a name you need to know. It's kind of a well-known secret. Let me explain. He might not be a mass market name like Gary Vee or Seth Godin, but he's the name for the people in the top growth circles. He's the guy CEOs and VP growth type of people consult with. After being the head of marketing at several high growth companies, he was the VP growth at Segment, Drift, Gorgeous. He's been a growth advisor to G2, Ramp, Capchase, and so on. His requirements for choosing who he works with are sky high. I can't tell you how much he charges, but you'd be floored when you hear the answer. And he also takes equity, yet there's a line out his door. There's way more demand for his expertise than he can supply. He's the most expensive growth consultant around and the best companies can't get enough of him. Basically, you'll never be able to afford him and he won't have time for you anyway. So, how does he help companies compete? How do hypergrowth partners build winners? In this episode, we'll talk about getting to the right message. Maybe they're using like winter to test like the copy and then what happens? All of that very granular insights gets mashed up into one onboarding. We no longer care about why you came in. This is the product. We hear about a three-step process for growth. I try to like understand what's going on. I will push them to test a couple of things which I know have been wins elsewhere. And the most important is training them on how to find new ideas and how to experiment on their own. And we talk about the importance of having respected ambassadors speak out for your brand. If you think of like a leader in marketing, let's say Udi from Gong, right? Like, I respect Udi, great leader. And I feel if I see Udi saying good things about this product, it's probably legit. Let's get into it. Gee, you're in the business of making winning repeatable. How do you do that? <laughs> I'd say most of my job is pattern matching. It's about understanding the conditions a company, a startup is in. What's their market? What have they already tried? What have they maybe not tried? What are the, the opportunities? I'm a marketer. So if you look at marketing teams, the couple of pillars are like understanding what's happening. Okay. So are you able to understand how your business is doing? Okay. Then knowing where are the opportunities versus what's happening? What is best in class? Do you have the experience for that or not? And then when there's a gap, knowing what can I try? What are the experiments that are likely to be successful? And that's where pattern matching happens. When I see that you have maybe a 15% activation rate, all right? Now, a couple of ideas pop in my head immediately. Do we have the right audience coming to the site? Are we priming them for the right experience? And are we creating the right incentives? And I already have ideas of experiments in my head, like, oh, I've tried this before. I tried this at Segment. I tried this at Drift. I tried that at Gorgeous. Which one is the closest? Which one is the most likely to succeed? And so that's what I do. And so when I see a new, a new business that comes to me and asks for advisory, I'm thinking, 
is it likely that I'll be able to like use many tricks from my big bag of tricks? So when when you let's say you're working on a, on a company that is competing in a saturated market or category, and most most companies are in these days in in B two B. Absolutely. So where do you start? Are you looking at what the competitors are doing? Are you starting with who are the customers and what do they want? What's your starting point? So I, I have a, a new client recently in fintech, expense management and corporate credit cards. Pretty saturated, man. Like those things have been around forever. And so I'm looking at what do we have right now? We have pretty good volume. We have pretty good traction. Most of it is organic. They have not tested many non-organic channels. Okay, that's one opportunity. Should we focus on that or not? That's the first question. Two, what are the conversion rates? Hmm, conversion rates are average. And that's the first mistake most people do. Like they look at the average and say, well, it's pretty okay. I look at the distribution. You got to cut your audience in multiple buckets and understand like, well, some of it converts really well and some of it converts really poorly. That's always the case. Is it because we are bringing the wrong people to our product or because we're pushing the wrong uh, promise? And it's often a bit of both. And so I'm going to start understanding the audience. I'm going to start testing hypotheses. If I change something, does it produce the expected lift? I'm going to give you an example that I do like almost all the time. Almost all, say, fairly mid-stage, late-stage companies have good acquisition strategies with like very granular campaigns and landing pages. Maybe they're using like winter to test like the copy on, on the landing page, whatnot, and they get leads. And then what happens? All of that very granular insight and experience gets mashed up into one onboarding, into one product and one welcome uh, email chain. And so it's kind of like a funnel of information with this compression, which is really weird because we found that we had to personalize and to cater the message to them at the top of the funnel to get them to be interested. And then we say, hey, now that you're in, we no longer care about why you came in. Like, this is the product. And I said, this is wrong. This is absolutely wrong. If you understand that you have multiple different audiences, you got to keep that differentiation towards the very end. I'm French and I live at the border of France and Italy right now. So like I like to speak of like a good parallel is Italian dishes, right? You got to think of like the cannelloni versus the lasagna. Most teams organize like cannellonis, right? They actually have like isolated teams and like somebody does like paid ads and does a granular job. And then the other person is like another, is another silo and say, cool, like I just have a product. I'm going to do the best onboarding for everyone. Right? You got to think in terms of lasagna which is like from end to end, you got to preserve what made that person tick. If somebody came for expense management for free, which might be like a, a reason, right? Well, if you push them eventually into like a page or a product that says, hey, like pick your plan and there's only paid plans, obviously that's not going to work well. An essential prerequisite for improving conversions is to create and maintain scent make pre-click message and post-click messages look and feel the same. There needs to be scent. The ad they see or the email they read needs to smell like the landing page they land on. You have to maintain the same scent. I once saw an offer for a free SaaS growth consultation session offered by a prominent ex-startup founder. And I thought to myself, well, why not? A new perspective always helps. But as I explored the offer, it turned out that the consultation was supposed to be with one of his hired coaches, someone who had never started a company in his life. I passed. 
That's classic bait and switch. Don't do that. So you got to preserve the information. If you have expense management for a large enterprise, put them into something which respects what you know about them. So it's really about coherence end-to-end. -end. And that's what we miss most of the time in organizations. We miss the end-to-end -end coherence. Your starting point is then the company itself. What are they doing or not doing? And where are they currently underperforming? And then that is a, a way to optimize the machine. Yeah, I've got a three-step approach. I try to like understand what's going on, as you said. Two, I will pattern match myself and push them to test a couple of things which I know have been wins elsewhere to gain confidence that they can actually execute and that the truth that I have, the knowledge I have from elsewhere actually applies here. And third, which made me the most important, is training them on how to find new ideas and how to experiment on their own. And that's very important. Sure, I have a pretty large bag of tricks, but eventually I'm going to run out. And that's not a long-term competitive moat. The moat is from helping. It's giving them the win so they get excited. Then they have this need for more. You have the gateway drug to hyper growth. And eventually you want more. And so then you need to spin up your growth team right, with an experimentation framework, which I provide. And that helps them find those new ideas, evaluate, sort, and pick, and, and then test the ideas okay, at a very high pace. Because that's how they're going to win over and over, over multiple years. What about competing on product? In your approach, are you like, oh, well, you're mostly like the other products or at least not worse, so let's focus on marketing? Or are you also, you have a Me Too product or inferior product, maybe? I'm a marketer, so my job is not to do the product. Most companies that succeed through the product because they have a great product, and the marketing is just like supporting the product. You got to respect the marketers who are able to push up an inferior product and succeed. Those are the good marketers, right? When you're hiring marketers, don't do the mistake of, of hiring people who are at a very successful brand and who were successful by default, because then the product is great. Do the opposite, like companies that are successful with a crappy product, or if not crappy, at least like a, a me too product, like an average product. I'll give you a, a harsh, brutal example that I lived in. I worked at Drift. Look at Drift in the early days. Drift is a live chat competing with Intercom and 20, maybe 100 other live chat products, most of which were free. So that's, if you want to look for a saturated market, that's one, like saturated with free products. Was Drift in 2016, 2017, a much better product than all the others? I'd argue not so, right? It was a good product, but not very differentiated. Did Drift succeed on the marketing side at creating a nice wedge in the market? Absolutely, absolutely. So that's a good example. Right, of like winning through marketing and not through product. Drift introduced a new narrative. They offered a point of view about the market and the world and how companies need to adapt to the new reality. The story was that everyone is doing real-time communication today, chatting and texting. And if you have old-school lead gen forms that say, we'll get back to you in 24 hours, that is so last century. What you need is to have real-time conversations with the customers, and that's where Drift comes in. Drift didn't lead with features and capabilities. That would have positioned them as a commodity. Instead of playing the feature parity game, lead with a narrative that gets people to lead in, heads nodding. Change the context around your capabilities. Work on your strategic narrative. 
So in Drift's case, let's say the feature set was a commodity. Oh, you can do live chat and bots and then send some emails. Yeah. But then in terms of their brand and messaging, they did not talk about conversational sales, conversational marketing, revenue acceleration, all those things. Uh, so that's competing on story, competing on brand. How important is that? When you have a, a Me Too product, very important, obviously. But I think in that case, more specifically, it was about understanding that there was no winning the legacy market. Right? Drift was in a legacy market where live chat has been around for 20 more years. And it was already labeled by Gartner and Forrester and all of the analysts as, you know, this is how live chat are supposed to work and this is all the features. And if you enter a feature war, you're never going to win. Right? It's, it's a terrible thing to do. You will be able to react, but you will be reacting. And the, the speed at which you can react will largely depend on how well you've prepared your company to change and innovate. You have to design your business to constantly evolve the experiences that you're delivering to customers. And so it's about saying, hey, we're going to create our own market, our own category. We're going to rename it. It's not, we're not a live chat. We're conversational marketing, right? And you can say, no, that's just like some marketing BS. But it works. It works in the sense that it's now a category that Drift was able to define the controls and other features of that category and be listed as a leader in that category. That absolutely works. How often do you go into a client's business and say, hey, you guys should consider creating a new category? Oh, don't worry. Everybody wants that. So the clients already know that. They know they want that. The question is, is it possible? All right. And it's not always possible. If you look at the companies that have been able to do it, there are a few of them. Everyone wants to be the leader of their own category. Gainsight said it requires millions of dollars. Do you agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. Look at Drift. It's more than millions of dollars. Look at all the events and conferences, all the sponsoring, all the podcasts and content, all the people working on it. Tens of millions. The reality is there's a big dark side to creating category. Yeah. It's actually really hard because you're trying to create something that didn't exist before, educate people on the new way to do things. Yeah, some of you know that expression, fighting with your arms tied behind your back. It's kind of like doing that, but underwater, blindfolded and surrounded by sharks with lasers. That's literally sometimes what category creation feels like. It's a big metaphor. Big metaphor, big. yeah, exactly. If you take anything away from today in the session, it's this. Don't create a new category. Don't, just don't just do it. don't do You've it. Learn that it's not worth it. Yeah, That's right. So thank, thank you, everyone. everyone. Appreciate thank it. You. Appreciate it. So what do you do if you, let's say you're early or you don't, you're not well-funded, it's a mature category, your product is okay, but it's not revolutionary, don't have the money to do category creation. Yeah. Then what strategy would you bank on or where would you start then? You got to find some angle of differentiation. Like obviously, right? Look at Gorgeous. Okay. Gorgeous, former client of mine, a help desk for e-commerce stores. Pretty successful. All right. Help desk, man, like everybody's a help desk, right? And there's a leader, Zendesk, public company, huge one. Now they understood that they could carve out within the entire market, a smaller niche, which is e-commerce. And there were not many players in that category. Okay. Now there's no such category such as like help desk for e-commerce, at least yet. And they don't have the means to create the category yet. But it is a market. It is a niche with underserved needs. So they built feature sets, namely integrations with Shopify, with all the e-commerce platforms. And the marketing side, we started outreaching hard on the populations that did not have anything, basically managing all the tickets in Gmail, and the population that has Zendesk, 
which was basically underserving them by not having any integration with the e-commerce tool stack. And the win rates were above 50%. And that's when you understand that you have something there. And it's not so much, at least at the beginning, having a very differentiated, like awesome product. It's about having the right angle. It's saying you have an e-commerce store, it's very successful, and we understand that where you make money is with repeat customers. It's now with new customers. In e-commerce, margin on new customers is very low. So repeat customers. And the only way to bring repeat customers is to offer a great experience, Amazon style. How are you going to do that if you take 48, 72 hours to respond? And just by having a messaging that is very acutely on the e-commerce situation, we're able to create that connection and win. And then once you start having that momentum, then you create more features and more features, and then you start winning there. And Gorgeous is now like Series B, raised a ton of money, very successful, 130 people. The most common strategy in business is playing the brand preference game. My brand is better than yours. The problem is that customers don't find incremental improvement exciting. When you create a new market or subcategory, winning is no longer based on my brand is better than your brand, but rather on being the only brand for this subcategory. Competitors lose because they lack the new must-haves this subcategory brings. The requirement to win the positioning game by building a new subcategory is new or improved must-haves that provide a different or significantly better capabilities, like in this case, deep integrations with e-commerce. To find an opportunity to develop a new subcategory, you need to create a new set of must-haves. Offerings without those new must-haves won't be relevant, visible, nor credible. Ultimately, this is about differentiation and why the customers would choose you. And I think there's something we're forgetting here, which is my general approach to B2B SaaS is in identifying, mapping the entire market first. Most people will have what I call a passive approach. They create a product, then they create some outbound and inbound, like mix of channels, like some ads, some content, and some outbound, whatnot, everything. And they wait for the leads to trickle in. And I'm like, that's cool. We don't know if we're targeting the right people by doing that. What is the total market revenue? So what I try to do is I identify every single company here. And within each company, let's identify every single buyer. So if you think of ABM, that's like ABM at like mass scale. And then say, which companies are, are likely to close now? What's the right channel? What's the right investment? What's the right message? And who should we reach out now? Because most of the people we should not reach out to now. And we are now closer to being like farmers who are optimizing the total revenue of a total market. That's what I did at Drift. That's also what I did at Segment. That's also what I did at Gorgeous recently. We mapped all of the e-commerce stores in the US that had over a million dollars worth of transactions per year. There's a hundred K-ish of them, all right? That's not that big. And so we could say, hey, in the old approach, we had identified like 30,000 of them and we were hammering those 30,000 stores like every month with emails and whatnot but there were 70% of the market that we were just ignoring because we just didn't know about them. By mapping the entire market, we're able to be a lot more strategic about why are we not talking to those people? Like, why are they not coming to our content? Why are we not like engaging with them? And what can we do to change that? The marketer's dilemma. Should we go after the customers that we want as customers or should we focus on the type of customers we have? 
That's actually a false dichotomy and the wrong way to think about it. To win, you need to be objectively better and or clearly differentiated. You can't be better at everything. So you gotta carefully choose your customers. What kind of customers can you serve the best? Which would also result in high quality, lots of word of mouth. And who are also high profit and long retention? You need to get two things right. You have to target the defensible market segment and you have to create a business model that enables you to win against competitors who are also going after the same target segment. In developing a high profit business model to engage your target customers, you have two basic choices. One, increase your customer value, or two, lower your cost to serve, or you do both. It all starts with going after the right customer. So once you have that list of hundreds of thousands of prospects or whatever, how will you then decide how to engage them? Will you run ads or do cold outreach via email or LinkedIn? We bucket the populations in, in like either some personas or some like we have some leads going different ways, right? And we try to like identify and test different approaches for each bucket. So you could say, hey, like it's a simple way. Let's just cut it by like company size. That's how most people do it. And so you can say, well, maybe the larger companies, we can test them outbound, but it's unlikely to work. Right. If you do some outbound to like VPs of CS at like large Shopify stores, like meh, right? So you need something more personalized, a better approach. And so you test different approaches. So there you need a marketer who knows all the possibilities and knows like what's likely to work at different levels of seniority and company size. So I know ads, meh, unlikely to work. All right. Outbound email, unlikely to work. You need a personal touch. Cool. What's a personal connection? In that specific case, we went through agencies. All those large stores work with agencies and going through them, we're able to leverage the trust of the agency to get to the store. So this dev channel, that's one example. But you need to be able to identify and be strategic, like what is the best mix of channels for each bucket? Mm-hmm. Are there any um, broad stroke rules that you go by that if you're this, then that? Yeah, absolutely. I try to avoid burning the market. And that's very important. Like I could blast an email to the entire market this day and make the quarter and then like fail at every year in the future, right? And so you got to understand like, what percentage am I converting? This is what percentage am I burning? And am I converting more than am I burning? And what's the refresh rate of the market? People who are changing jobs and getting promoted and whatnot. So you, you got to be like tactical about that. That's number one. And number two for me, it's leverage the intent. If you have the entire market mapped, you got to think within that market, there are some part of it which is likely to convert better than the rest of the market at the same, at say, score or lead scoring, right? It's those that are expressing the need to change, whether they're doing it willingly or not. So example, if they go to the G2 category and they view your competitors, and you can buy that data from my friends at G2, well, they're expressing a buying intent if you get that information. And so those should bubble up to the top of the people who should get more no outreach for me, obviously. Yeah. Some of the intent data that I've seen is like fairly useless, you know, because there's so many intent data providers and some is like, oh, interested in semiconductors. And then you're like, well, so what, what exactly do we do with this? I hate that kind of intent data. I'm not going to name the vendors, but I hate when I can't validate the intent data myself. So I'll give you two cases of intent data. There's intent data, I can prove that it works. Okay, so example, my friends at Predict Leads sell intent data 
on hiring. So they basically scrape all the job boards. They do like natural language processing and they identify this company like is hiring a VP of customer success. I can look at 10 records, go to the jobs and teams page and check the job posting is there. I'm like, okay, I understand how it works. I can verify it myself. I can get pretty good confidence. Like this stuff is legit. In my case, if they're hiring a VP of CS, like it's a good sign. Right? When I was at Drift, I was buying the data for like increasing sales team. Hey, are they like doubling the size of the sales team? If they are, like they need more leads, they need a chatbot. Cool. So that's the intent data you can validate. That's true for uh, hiring data. It's true for G2. It's true for... And then there's like the intent data, which is like kind of black box. They're looking for those keywords. Like they're reading articles about that. There's no way I can validate that. Just like you could tell me anything that I want to hear. How would I know? You mentioned about a, a classic competitive strategy mistake, waiting harder for the leads to come in, and as opposed to you know going after them proactively. What other classic mistakes are you seeing when it comes to competing in a saturated category? The lack of differentiation, and also just talking about your product. Many, many companies, when I look at the ad running, I look at the copy, I look at the ads, and it's just me, 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 all right? If there's 20 companies like yours, I'm not going to feel the subtle difference. And I'm not going to care. I'm going to spend three seconds looking at your ad. I'm just not going to care. We're just focused on the customer and don't look at the competition. Sounds great on paper, but it's not smart. Most brands operate in saturated categories, and there are hundreds of alternatives, most of which look the same and say the same things. If you speak about yourself as if you're the only one doing what you're doing, you're making it needlessly hard for yourself. So many SaaS tools lead with product-based messaging and state the plain obvious as if that's unique or impressive. Marketing has always been about the customer and not the competition. Too much focused on the customer and you end up with sameness. Most customer insights are category-level insights, so everyone ends up solving for the same problems quite the same way. This results in companies playing a game they actually cannot win. The barrier of entry to starting a new business has never been lower. So if you want your Me Too tool to be picked by someone, odds are heavily stacked against you. Differentiation is about standing out and providing a reason to choose you over others. You'd think companies would be all about that. Curiously, not so much. In fact, the opposite is true. Sameness is the default. Sameness is the combined effect of companies being too similar in their product, poorly differentiated in their branding, and indistinct in their communication. Most companies say very predictable, obvious things focused on their product. As Andy Raskin said, product differentiation by itself has become indefensible because today's competitors can copy your better, faster, cheaper features virtually instantly. Now, the only thing they can't replicate is the trust that customers feel for you and your team. If you're telling a why us story, why these solutions are better than similar ones that you might find elsewhere. It's very self-centered. It's like, here's how we solve your problem, and here's how we're better uh, than the others. And this seems like a reasonable approach. I mean, uh, we all do have competitors, after all. And maybe it worked uh, back when markets had few enough players that you know, buyers could ignore the bluster and sort through all the claims. Uh, but that's not what 
markets look like today. I mean, each of you probably competes not against a handful of competitors, but, but dozens, all screaming, why us, at customers. What makes your audience care? What makes them resonate? And there's only one thing that makes them really resonate, right? It's social proof and the fact that I will see that, hey, like, I know this person. If you think of like a leader in marketing, let's say Udi from Gong, right? Like, I respect Udi, great leader. And I feel, if I see Udi saying good things about this product, I'm like, it's probably legit. I'm interested in what Lego and Adidas and Disney are doing um, more than I'm interested in, in most B2B brands. And, and that's where we get a lot of our ideas. Now, even more important, if you compete with Gong and you see Gong using this product, you're like, I want to know. So one of my key strategies has been to try and present not the customers that they may know, but the competitors that are using my product that they might have. And so I use data from our alert to identify the competitors, and then I present all the competitors that match my customers, because I know that's going to intrigue them a lot more. All right? If I see like the logo bar of like five of my competitors, I'm like, cool, I got to read everything. Like, why are they using this and not me? Right? What am I missing? Because that's what people are afraid about. They're afraid about missing stuff. Right. Some of it is also then like B2B influencer marketing. So how do I get Udi or some other famous person to, you know, mention my thing? I'm not a relationship expert, but like relationships take time to blossom. You got to find everybody's interest. All right. Obviously, like Gong is very successful. And so if your small startup has Gong as their client, that's great. They're unlikely to see value from like them mentioning you. Like a partnership is not in their favor. It's in yours. Right. Uh, so you got to understand that and what can you do for them? But I'd say one of the easy ways, if you're the founder, is to open your cap table to some angel investors. Take some 5, 10, 20K checks from 20 people you really respect. You'll get the success stories, right? Because then you have a, an alignment of the incentives. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Have them be literally invested in you. Absolutely. Even without that, you can understand like what's the alignment of incentive? Can they access your market? Do they need some validation on something on some category which you're you're really good at? What do they want? You mentioned uh, also when it comes to differentiation, you need to know what really resonates with the person you're trying to sell to influence. So, what are your top ways to go about figuring that out? Understanding who I'm about, who I want to influence. So, understanding my 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 persona better. It's interesting. I had a call about that yesterday with, with uh, a client of mine where they were about to embark on a journey where they were going to sign up a huge wait list into a um, customer discovery questionnaire. And they told me, but we don't want those as clients. And I'm like, that's weird. Why are, they, are you asking them all those questions? Like, oh, well, because we have them on the wait list. So we might as well like, ask them like, what product they want. That's weird. Even if they answer, like, you don't want them as clients because they're all gmail.com addresses, right? And I said, let's change what we're going to ask. Let's not ask what they want. Let's ask them first who they are, right? And who's behind that Gmail. And so, again, B2B SaaS, I'm always about understanding like, what's the company, what's the person. Can I buy the data from my friends at Clearbit or elsewhere? Or do I need to sniff for the data? Very often, if you look at sign-up forms, demo forms, or, or like uh, survey forms, 
we're expensing too many fields, so there's a cost in conversion to every field, on stuff that we could get elsewhere, job title, company name, company size. And we're not using that real estate for stuff we can't get elsewhere, which is like, hey, what's the pain? What's the real need? What's your budget? What's your team size? What's the number one problem? Okay, that is what is critical, is who they really are, can I get the data, and what is their problem? I like to relate branding, the gym experiment, right? When you pay into a gym, and I know that you do, right? You exercise a lot, right? And so when you do that, it's because you have hope of a better future of yourself. Like you have this image like, hey, I'm going to improve. Like you want that. When you don't go to the gym, you don't churn immediately because you feel bad about giving up on that hope. Right. Inside of you, you're like, oh, right? I'm going to be fat and ugly for the rest of my life now, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very similar process that you can apply here. Ask them, what is their pain and like, what they want solving when they use the product? And if they don't activate, remind them of why they came. Use that thing, bucket it and say, hey, you told me that you had problems with your uh, tickets on your e-commerce store. Have you solved that problem? Are you now responding faster? Is your repeat rate higher? And obviously it's not. And so it's gonna make them feel bad. And so they're gonna come back. So use exactly the same process. Awesome. G, thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. So what are the three key tools that G and Hypergrowth use to guide their customers to growth? One. They will map out the landscape of potential customers and make a plan to reach each segment in that list. My general approach to B2B SaaS is in identifying, mapping the entire market first. So what I try to do is I identify every single company here. And within each company, let's identify every single buyer. So if you think of ABM, that's like ABM at like mass scale. Two, they rely on social proof and showcasing which competitors of the prospect are using the tool. One of my key strategies has been to try and present not the customers that they may know, but the competitors that are using my product that they might have, because I know that's gonna intrigue them a lot more. Three, they use trusted data and metrics to work out who is buying so they can target their marketing efforts. My friends at Predict Leads sell intent data on hiring. I can verify it myself. When I was at Drift, I was buying the data for like increasing sales team. Hey, are they like doubling the size of the sales team? If they are, like they need more leads, they need a chatbot. And the final takeaway from G. I have a pretty large bag of tricks, but eventually I'm gonna run out. And that's not a long-term competitive mode. It's giving them the win so they get excited. Then they have this need for more. You have the gateway drug to hyper growth. That's how you win. I'm Pep Lau. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.